Welcome to Conversation on Cancer, brought to you by the Riverside Cancer Institute. I am Dr. Asim Basha, a medical oncologist and hematologist at the Riverside Cancer Institute. Today's episode is part of the C word, community, not cancer series. In this series, we invite guests to share their own experiences with cancer and help them to relate to others. In this episode, it's going to be a little bit unusual. So I'm not talking to one of my patients or anybody I'm professionally connected with. This is actually Rocco Versace. He is a high school friend of mine, going back, I guess, 40-something years, more or less, and who's had his own experience with cancer and a compelling story and a compelling storyteller. That's why I invited him on to our episode today. Rocco grew up in the Chicago suburbs in Downers Grove, where I did. We went to high school together. And as he says in his own book, he's a product of Italian-American family, too many movies, and countless books, and a Midwestern suburban adolescence. He studied here in Illinois at the University of Illinois, eventually moving to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And now he works, his occupation or profession is a professor of English literature at Palomar College in Southern California. Anyway, so... So Rocco, this brief introduction obviously is on this series because he had his own experiences with cancer. Rocco was actually fought cancer twice now and is here to tell the story. So I'll let you get into details, Rocco, about how it all started up for you. Yeah, thank you. And, and thank you for having me here. So like you said, my cancer story is kind of in two big parts. The first one happened in 2003. I was 35 years old and I was wrestling with my son and, and his head hit my chest and I felt some, something strange there. Like it was, a, it was a strange pain and I, you know, probed a little further and it was like a little, I could feel a little bump underneath the skin. And I didn't think too much about it at the time, but eventually it was bothering me enough that I went to my doctor and he started ordering a series of tests and probably about a third of the way through that process, I started Googling some of this stuff mm -hmm. and, you know, it became clear that they were, they were looking for a cancer of some kind. They thought at first it might be, you know, male breast cancer. It wasn't that. It turned out to be a germ cell tumor. So the treatment for that was, as far as I understood it, it was the same chemotherapy cocktail used for testicular cancer. And I didn't have any surgeries or anything like that, but I did have a total of nine weeks of pretty intense chemotherapy where it would be, you know, one full week, pretty much the entire morning. And then I would have two weeks off except for getting one of the drugs every Monday of those off weeks and then start the whole thing again. And it was pretty hard. I mean, it was, it was a tough experience. There were definitely side effects with the whole thing. I was terrified. You know, I, I felt pretty young and, and I you know, enjoyed pretty good health and there was no history of cancer in my family or anything like that. I had two young kids. Yeah. My sons were seven and five at the time. So, I mean, most of my fear was really about, you know, thinking about them and them growing up without a father. Or, and, you know, that was just really sometimes just paralyzing. Yeah, yeah. Just so the listeners know, I'm actually getting a lot of my information besides knowing you. Rocco did write a book. I forgot to mention the beginning of this after his experience. The book is called That Hidden Road. And so I did take some notes from, from your book, Rocco. And before I kind of move on a little bit, when you were first diagnosed with the germ cell tumor, a couple of things come up is the fact that you didn't know what was going on. And so you Googled a lot. What's your experience of Googling things when you're not knowing what's going on? And, you know, I speak as a professional and always say, oh, don't Google anything. But, you know. It serves a purpose, correct? 
It, it does. And, you know, I, I agree with you, though, because you reach a point, I think, where it's diminishing returns. It's just an overload of, of information. And I mean, for me, it was the, the most helpful part of it was just to understand, like, what this was exactly, how the treatment would work, things I could expect in terms of, like, side effects and, and things like that. It started to, I, I started to back off of that a little bit when I started to get into and this is kind of ironic because I love stories, but when I started getting into individual stories about people who have had this particular cancer, you know, because it's kind of a mixed thing. You know, some people get through it, you know, pretty easily and, and recover and, you know, others don't. And, and once I started absorbing a lot of those stories, I, I knew that I had to kind of just, you know, back off a little bit. I did seek a um, support group. You yeah. know, I, I asked my nurses if there was something like that going on. And it was kind of a strange thing for me. I've never really seen myself as kind of a, you know, support group person or, I don't know, just the whole idea of, of sitting with a bunch of strangers and, and you know, sharing details isn't something that appealed mm -hmm. to me. But, you know, I, I just, there was something inside of me that just felt like this would be a good thing to do. I, I, I really, I wanted to be careful not to, not to miss anything in the whole experience. You know, I just felt early on just being overwhelmed with, you know, all the, the science stuff, my own research you know, things going on with, with my family and friends. I started keeping a journal. I felt like that was <laughs> going to be really important. And then I went to this group and man, it was, it was just, it was so, it was so enlightening for me. I, I, I yeah. took so much away from that. And, you know, nobody in the group had, I mean, everyone had a different kind of cancer and they were in different stages of treatment. Some were not doing well. And there were, there were a couple of people in that group that ended up passing away during the time I was involved with that. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that was, of course, you know, frightening on the surface of it. But, I mean, I just remember, I remember two people in particular and just the, the kind of grace that they, that they had, the, the kind of peace they made with things. I, I choked up just remembering it. But it was, it was, it was really, it was really something. It's a part of that experience that you all know, never forget. And it was, you know, very, very helpful for me as I was, as I was going through everything. And, and the journal was really helpful too. It was a place for me yeah. to, you know, it started out, I was just trying to write everything down, you know, so I wouldn't forget things that happened. And then, you know, then it morphed into more, you know, kind of Personal. internal philosophical musings. But I know that your, your conversations with people really focuses on community and, and I think immediately of that support group. Yeah, and I, I, some of the interesting things I, you know, that I recall from the book was just the fact that some some of these advice was just really practical, like take a blanket when you're to the PET scan so you don't get so cold. And then some, I think, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was explaining chemo fog or brain fog to you, you know, things that sometimes the doctors forget to tell you that to expect, but help you kind of get through those, like what's going on kind of things, right? Yeah, that was that was a woman named Sarah in the group, and she was one of the people that, that passed away. But yeah, the 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 brain fog was chemo brain was was really that was really frightening. I mean, I'm a big reader, you know, like you mm -hmm. mentioned, I, I teach writing and literature, and I I couldn't read a book. I, I just could not focus for long enough on words on a page, and you know, then I started worrying that it's just this permanent. It was my brain being rewired or something. So, I mean, it was helpful to, to hear from other people. So, yeah. So I think, you know, I, I love the idea that you reached out to community and created like a community of people around you to support you through these other patients. And that was, that was pretty amazing. In your book, you also talk a lot about, you know, communicating with family, not all that easy, obviously. So telling your family about you having cancer and everything like that, when you barely knew what was going on too, right? It was kind of early on when you were talking about all of this. 
I have to say that telling people about it was one of the hardest things I've, I've ever had to do. And it wasn't, it wasn't about, you know, I know sometimes people feel shame about being ill. It wasn't that. It was just I knew like in the, the seconds before I said something to, to somebody, you know, family, friends, whatever, that I was going to like just totally rearrange their world. I, I knew that they were going to feel this kind of, you know, awkward pressure and how to respond. And I, I just felt like I was holding this kind of, you know, horrible power, you know, this, this information. Mm-hmm. And, and it never got any easier. You know, I, I, you'd think that, you know, telling people over and over it becomes kind of wrote, but it was like each each time was this, you know, it was this really, you know, awkward, uncomfortable drama that, that just kind of had to play out. And my parents in particular, you know, they, it was, I was in California, they were back in Chicago. My mom was already demonstrating signs of dementia. And, you know, of course, there were hearing issues too. So a lot of times when we had just normal phone conversations, I'd have to, you know, repeat things several times. And I kind of strategized with my brother a little bit about how to do this. So I, you know, I, I told him first and he was going to have them over for dinner. And then he actually told them first before I called. So it already kind of softened the blow a little bit. And at the same time, I can't remember why, if this was a function of the chemo, but I'd been losing my voice. Like it got really hoarse. I mean, it was probably stress related too. So then I was worried I wasn't going to be able to, you know, voice what I needed to, to say. But yeah, it, 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 you know, it went as well as could be expected. Yeah. I mean, obviously, getting people that information, because everybody's worried about you, you're worried about them. As you mentioned earlier, you're worried about leaving your kids fatherless, so there's all the stress of what's happening to you and how you communicate that to everybody. But as far as advice goes, you know, I do take care of patients with younger, younger kids, or even just kids in general. How do you communicate with them? So that's interesting because it was, it was quite different, you know, given the the two, the two bots with cancer, they were, they were 10 years apart. So like I said, Nick and Tony were seven and five the first time. And my wife at the time and I decided that we would be, you know, we'd try to be as straightforward as we could. But, you know, you're still putting it in, in kids' terms. I'm, I'm sick. Um, I'm going to need to, you know, take this medicine for a while that's going to, you know, make me look different. My, my hair may fall out. You know, I may not seem really well. And, you know, we we reassured them, too. And I didn't feel great about that because I, I just, you know, I don't. One thing became very clear to me early on is that there's no guarantees about anything, you know. Mm-hmm. So to say to someone, you know, it's going to be OK. I mean, you don't really know. So, I mean, we, we did do that with our with our kids. And I mean, I've talked to them about that, especially, you know, in light of the the second go around, they don't really remember it very well. You know, they were kind of vaguely aware that, you know, that I, I was sick. I mean, they were, um, I want to say they were both in school at the time. So they weren't really aware of me going anywhere, you know, because they'd go to school, I'd go to chemo, I'd be home before they would. I certainly had like a lot less energy to, to play with them than I typically did. Now, the second time around, you know, they were teenagers, 17 and 15, and I was no longer with their mother, but I was with my, my current partner, Shannon, and, you know, just kind of straight up told them. They were very aware of what was happening. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself with, with talking about the whole second thing, but. Sure, sure. You know, I think the, I hear things later, like they, they were very close to, they still are, to a, a teacher of theirs in high school who was also their, their running coach. And, you know, I reached out to her and, and let her know what was going on. And she told me much later that, you know, she had approached my younger son and, you know, asked if he wanted to talk about it. And he just, you know, he didn't at all. 
And then later, you know, I, I think I read an essay that he wrote for a scholarship or something. He had mentioned, you know, the difficulty of watching me go through this. And that made me feel bad, too, that he had kind of been sitting on it, you know. But I don't know. I think in, in some ways that's um, it, it's probably exacerbated because they're boys. And I think boys in general just don't talk about that stuff. And also just any child watching their parent who's really sick, that's tough to process and, you know, may not want to, you know, yeah. be very open or vocal about that. I appreciate it. Actually, why don't we go ahead and talk so Basically, you get you get through those four cycles of chemotherapy and recover from that, and you know, get into the middle in between stuff later. But um, you survived, right? I did. Yeah, and then ten years later, that's when it occurred. Yeah. So just that in between time a lot. You mentioned the book, yeah. and you know, one of the things that I had been doing before I got sick is I would bike and. It was mainly commuting to school, but I liked the idea of biking. And of course, you know, went through chemo. And then for quite a while after that, I just had no energy for any of that. And at some point, I got it in my head that I want to ride my bicycle across the country. And I, you know, I, I started with this 50-mile ride down in uh, Mexico that I, you know, as soon as I was feeling better, I started training for. And then, you know, other things happened with, you know, just personally where I, my yeah. marriage ended. And I started really focusing on this this bike ride. And, you know, I ended up doing that. And in the process of that ride and also writing about it, my experience with cancer became kind of a central part of that book. And I don't think I realized, like even on the ride, I don't think I realized until I was actually writing the book how much that ride was fueled by my first my first experience with cancer. And, you know, there was this, you know, big sense of accomplishment and everything. Okay. Yeah. So, so as part of my ongoing maintenance, you know, it started out, I think I'd go in quarterly to see my oncologist. There'd be blood tests, there'd be, you know, x-rays, I'd have CT scans. And then that got down to, you know, pretty much annual. It'd be like a chest x-ray and then a blood test and everything. By the way, one of the one of the um, lingering effects from the first round of cancer is I just developed this incredible needle phobia. Um, I didn't have a port or anything like that. So, you know, I had to go in there and it, it was really tough for me. I, just going in for blood tests afterwards, you know, I'd be almost paralyzed in my car trying to steal myself to go uh, in to get a stupid yeah. blood test. Okay. So it was part of my, and it was almost, it was just a little over 10 days, I think, or 10 years. I think I just posted something on Facebook about celebrating 10 years being cancer free. And I went in for my, you know, annual checkup and my oncologist walks in and says, your numbers are up. Yeah. And it, you know, it was so for a long time after my first experience with cancer. I mean, I thought about it every day. And then, you know, that kind of faded away. And I got to the point, you know, 10 years later, where I really didn't think about it all that much, you know, just kind of around the times when I had to go get my blood work and, and you know, go have this 10 minute meeting with my oncologist so he could tell me that everything was fine. And that didn't happen this time. And man, that was that was really something. I remember saying to people after the first time that I don't expect to ever be that scared for myself again. And I was wrong. It, it's amazing how, how fast that comes back. He, you know, we talked for a while and then he sent me just to the desk to schedule, I, I think it was a, a CT or a particular yeah. ultrasound, something like that. And, and I had a panic attack. I, I could just feel myself. I could just feel the blood draining from my body. I got cold and clammy. The, the nurse looked at me and she said, are you okay? I'm like, I don't think so. And then, uh, you know, there were, there were tests that followed and everything. And I remember very clearly being in my office at school 
And my doctor called with the results of the testicular ultrasound and told me that, you know, it was definitely cancer. And I can't remember all the details. And the next thing I remember is I was at home. I had biked home. I have no memory of that bike ride home from school. It, and, you know, it was just really, really scary, just the, the whole way that, I mean, you think you're you're done with some things, right? And, and you're yeah. not. And I, I think intellectually, after the first time, I would say, well, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And, and now I, you know, I viscerally feel that yeah. having, you know, having had that. So the second, the first time I, I had cancer was a germ cell tumor. The second time was testicular cancer. Everything about it was worse. I was 10 years older. The chemo hit me. It was a little bit different. One of the one of the drugs I took the first time around, I could not have again. So as a result, they added an extra cycle. So it was it was 12 weeks instead of nine weeks. I was I was very sick through a lot of it. I mean, there were days where I just couldn't stop throwing up. There were surgeries too. I had a well, I had a testicle removed. I had a port this time which I don't remember being given the choice about that, but it was it was much better than, than having to be stuck all the time. After it was over, I had to have pretty major surgery because there was still there were there were tumors in my around my lymph node, which mm-hmm. they suspected were probably something called teratoma benign. Yeah. But it was a pretty involved surgery. It was like six hours. It was retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. I have to put that on all my, you know, doctor forms now and, and every yes. time a doctor will say, What is that? Uh, <laughs> I could show you the scar. Yeah. And, you know, I was I was in the hospital for a week. I got out briefly and then, you know, I went in and they told me that the biopsies were all it was all benign, you know, it was it was cancer free. There was this, you know, momentary swelling of relief. And then I asked about, you know, being really it felt really bloated and, and, and tight. And the doctors started taking a couple of the staples out and all of this liquid just started gushing out mm-hmm. of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just all this, you know, lymph fluid that had been collecting. I went back into the hospital for about a week as they, you know, monitored this situation. That whole thing, that I have to say, that surgical complication was way worse than the chemo I had gone through. And that was pretty bad. But I had to be on a zero-fat diet for a while. You know, when they let me out of the hospital, I was giving myself injections of this hormone like three or four times a day, which was something I... If you had told me like before this, oh, yeah, you're going to be giving yourself shots, I'm like, I can't do that. It's just amazing what you get used to. (laughs) How that needle shifts to normal and and you adjust to it. And I had to be on a zero-fat diet, which is pretty brutal. I mean, I I dropped down to probably about 145 pounds. I'm I'm typically around like, you know, 185. I look at pictures of myself from that time and, you know, I I look like a a skeleton with skin on it. Uh, I don't even recognize myself, really. Yeah. Yeah. Give me one second. I just just want to reassure our listeners also. You know, every cancer is a little bit different. So... The particular type of tumor that Rocco had, his particular kind of cancer, it does have a long latency period. So we do recommend for patients with those particular types of cancers and some others, you know, we're going to keep an eye on you for 20 years. It's actually in our guidelines, just so you're aware. Whereas other cancers, you know, we feel much more comfortable oftentimes saying after five years, yeah, things are good. But each, again, everybody's different. Like Rocco said earlier, you know, although we try to use the best of our knowledge, we don't, we don't guarantee anything, but, you know, 10 years online, you know, don't be scared all the time, but, you know, certain cancer we do keep an eye on. And, you know, the, the way I understood it is that this was not a recurrence, but... A second primary? Yeah. I mean, it's possible that, it, I mean, it could have been triggered by the, the treatment. I don't know, but, it, I mean, yeah. the way it was explained to me by my doctor was just, you know, kind of like bad luck twice. 
Yeah. Actually, one of the things one of the things in your book I did write down for myself, you mentioned the first time you went through the chemotherapy, meeting your medical oncologist for the first time, that oncologist's job, as far as you figured, was not to put a patient at ease, but to explain things. Do you think that's the case? I think it's the case with my doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a wonderful guy, yeah. but uh, you know, just very, you know, just very matter of fact, and which mm-hmm. is actually something I came to appreciate, you know, because I, I didn't need more excessive, you know, kind of emotions. It was, but yeah, I mean, I, that's how that's how I saw it with my doctor. I just like yeah. every cancer is different, every doctor is different. I'm sure, and and, and we actually try to change ourselves for patients depending on what their needs are. In some ways, mm-hmm. you gotta be you gotta be who you can be for that patient. So. Yeah, it is just, you know, you talking about how everything is different. One of the things I became involved in after my first cancer was actually a group in Chicago called Immerman Angels. And what they do is they pair cancer survivors with people going through the same kind of cancer. And I had, I I think I've been paired with three people. Uh, The third one was the one, was a a guy named RG who lived in in the Chicago suburbs and became really close. I mean, we just had a a whole lot in common. He had a germ cell tumor. You know, when I'd go to Chicago, I'd I'd visit him and his family. And his his, uh, dealing with that ended up being much longer than mine and and did not have a happy ending. He had a a secondary diagnosis, I think of some kind of leukemia and just, you know. Sorry for that. But it's a really good group, though. And, you know, I wish I'd known about it when, when I was going through cancer the first time. But, yeah, I remember, you know, talking with him and, like, there was so much that was similar about, you know, and I would tell him things that I experienced. But then, you know, it took a turn and, and he was dealing with a lot of things that I was just lucky enough that I didn't have to. Yeah. Before I say a little bit more, I just want to talk about, so Rocco mentioned about it now around the across-the-country bike ride. So that is the topic of the book called That Hidden Road by Rocco. Great book. And I got a lot of it. I got a lot of it reading it, even just in terms of other issues with my life at that time. So it hit a lot of, a lot of things for me, but you know, for people who are interested in that book, you know, it's really a a cross country tour, you know, in given a lot of details, a lot of personal stories, as well as about his cancer and even includes cartoons. So, you know, strongly encourage it. People to get that book if they can, or at least go to the library. So, you know, do you want to, put that out there. So something that was interesting about the book is that, you know, I wrote a lot about my first experience with cancer because at the time of the ride, that's all I had. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I was going through my second experience with cancer as I was working on the revisions for that book. And it was really, I mean, if, you know, something good can come out of it, it was that secondary experience really helped me in writing about the first experience because instead Mm -hmm. of struggling to, you know, try to remember some of those feelings, I was, you know, going through them again. So they were right there. And, you know, that, that just reminds me of something with the support group and then in the writing of the book is, for me, I know people deal with, with these kinds of things in different ways, but for me, writing really saved me. It's just always been a place I've gone to to make sense of things, you know, my life, the world, whatever. And, you know, that journal I was keeping the first time was really helpful. And then when I went to the support group, what would happen when a new person would come in is everyone would kind of like tell their story. And it occurred to me at the time and then, you know, later I I really lived this is that, you know, when, when something, you know, people talk about fighting cancer and as if it's some kind of you know, yeah. enemy, but it's, it's really, it's your body. It's, it's your body, you know, kind of going awry. So it, it's, mm-hmm. it's you, mm-hmm. right? It's part of you. And, and there's such a feeling of a lack of control, not just with cancer, but I think any kind of illness when, when your body's imperiled, you know, you just realize how out of control things are, but telling the story 
even of this of that illness is a is a way of getting a kind of control over it and i would i would you know pick this up on the other people in the group and i would hear it in myself too as i would talk about it like it was me giving it a kind of structure giving it a narrative and a story and if i was the storyteller i could be somewhat in control of that and it's yeah i think i said in the book it's an illusion but it's it's a really powerful illusion yeah. and that really came home to me when i was writing the book and going through this again where the yeah. the revision to that book became this kind of kind of therapy for me yeah and that's in in a way that is actually one of the germs of this particular podcast series that i've been trying to do is to allow people to tell their stories allow people in addition to helping others it is about re-experiencing it in a way that you feel in control finally of being able to tell it and that's part of the idea behind it so i appreciate i appreciate you saying all of that so start wrapping things up is there anything else you want to say about your experience and maybe advice to anybody else who's kind of starting to deal with all of this? You know, I, I sometimes in like things I've read, not, not just about cancer, but I read a lot of memoirs and, and typically memoirs mm -hmm. are, are triggered by some kind of, you know, trauma or drama or something like that. And then there's always this kind of statement about, well, I don't want to be defined by this. I don't want to feel defined by this thing that happened to me or this thing I went through. And, and I understand that. But, you know, it's for me, I mean, it, it really is a part of who I am. And mm -hmm. unlike the first time, I mean, I do think about it every day now. I, I can't not. I see the scar on me from the, from the surgery, the, the smaller mm -hmm. scar from the port. I've got some, some tinnitus that I'm pretty sure is a result of, of one of the, the chemo drugs. So I mean, it's just kind of always there with me. And, you know, I, I, I understand like when you say you don't want to be defined by where it's not all you're about. And I, I totally agree with that. But, you know, it is a part of who I am. It's, and, and I don't, you know, I would never want to go through it again. You know, I said that the yes. first time, so yes. we'll see what happens. But at the same time, I, I kind of can't imagine like who I am now without those two experiences with cancer. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just... It's really reoriented my, my frame of mind. It's really brought a lot to my teaching in, you know, kind of not obvious ways. Just, you know, the way I, I deal with things. I mean, it's, it's altered me, no doubt about it. And I think the, I think if I have one piece of advice to offer, it's like, don't resist that, but think about, you know, how, how that alteration can be a positive thing. Yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. That's great. Rocco, thank you so much. It's amazing reconnecting you with the with you after all these years and getting this story out. It's a wonderful story, especially since you beat it twice, you know. And God willing, it'll stay that way. Appreciate you having me here, Austin. And thank you so much for for reaching out to me. It has been wonderful to reconnect. I'll to get back yeah. up to Chicago one of these days. Seems safe to travel. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So I want to thank you again uh, for coming here and sharing all experiences. I want to thank my listeners for tuning into this podcast series, Conversations on Cancer, brought to you by the Riverside Cancer Institute. I look forward to you sharing more stories through this particular series, The C Word, Community Not Cancer, and stay tuned for further episodes.